Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Welcome to GodPod at Home Focus. Um, for those of you listening on the uh, to, to, to GodPod, this is um, this is uh, an event we do here at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton every year. We go away to this wonderful place called Pakefield uh, on the coast in uh, Suffolk, and we enjoy the sunshine and the sea and everything else, and lots of people and God's presence, and it's uh, just a fantastic week. So here we are, and there's a whole lot of people here in the tent. You can't see them, um, but they are here, I guarantee. Um, say hello, everybody. There you are, there's a guarantee. They are actually here. We have an audience today. And we also have a fantastic lineup of very distinguished panel. Um, we don't have Mike and Jane, our normal um, customers, our normal people, but we do have uh, Tim Hughes. Yay, very good. Tim Hughes, leader of uh, Worship Central, worship leader at HTB, and everything else. We also have Archie Coates. who uh, runs HTB, runs the church and everything else. We also have Sandy Miller. <laughs> Esteemed vicar of Tollington Park and a former vicar, of course, of HTB. And uh, we have Andy Emerton. <laughs> the director of St. Paul's Theological Center. And entering late, we have... <laughs> Very good. We have Nikki Gumbel as well. Good. So um, here is the, the panel. Now, what's happened so far is that uh, several people have uh, sent in questions. Uh, Andy's going to be our question master, so he's going to sort of feed in some questions to us, and then we're going to have a go at answering them. And hopefully, towards the end of the time, we'll have a little bit of time for some open questions around the around the room as well. And uh, we're going to run up till um, the end of our time. So I shall hand over to Andy at this point, who's going to kick us off with one or two questions. Thank you, Graham. The joy of having uh, the microphone and being able to ask the questions so that I don't have to answer any of them. I can uh, pass all of those on to our panel here. Um, thank you for those of you that have uh, given us questions over the last few days. And as Graham said, we'll have a chance for some more from the floor later. Uh, let's get us going. So um, we've been hearing a lot about the kingdom uh, this week in various parts of the teaching at Home Focus. And a question here about the kingdom. Uh, do Christians have a monopoly on the ability to live out the kingdom of God here on earth? Do Christians have a monopoly on the ability to live out the kingdom of God here on earth? And shall we go, shall we give that to the, the dean first? Shall we start with the dean? Is that appropriate? <laughs> Graham Tomlin. Everyone else on this panel is looking like rather relieved at this moment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So anyway, this will give them time to think while I waffle away for a few, few minutes. But... Um, um, it seems to me that the kingdom of God is, I mean, one of the things um, I think that is important to say is that the kingdom is different from the church. The church is not the same as the kingdom. Uh, and in a sense, the kingdom of God is something broader and wider than the church. And that, um, the, the, in a sense, whenever you see, you know, God is the author of all, of all that is good. Now, there is nothing good that doesn't come from God in his world. And therefore, when something that is just good happens within society and within culture uh, that is it doesn't necessarily have to come from the church you can still attribute that to to god's kingdom within uh, his his world so for example i mean it's take something like the 
you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the kind of uh, the, 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 um, the overthrow of a very oppressive system across across Europe. Now, the churches were involved in that, but it wasn't only the church that that that, uh, that gave birth to that that um, that sort of revolution across across Europe and and the advance of that. Now, the outcome of that is yeah, and some some good things and some bad things in it. But um, but it seems to me that that is you know you don't have to say well that's not God's work just because the church didn't do it all. It's still God's work because everything good comes from God. Um, and, uh, but I think the church has a particular role in the kingdom, which is partly, you know, we, we, we are the ones who are specifically called out within humanity to enact the kingdom, to give people a, a taste of what the kingdom is like in the life of the church, and to build for the kingdom in the wider society that we're, we're a part. But the other part of it is that it's not that we're the only ones involved in that work of bringing about justice and security and peace and all of those other people are involved in that as well but i think we're also the ones who, who know what that means and who know where those things come from and so our role with the kingdom is partly to um to display it within our own life as a church to advance the life of the kingdom in, in the society that we're a part of but also to point to it to to tell to to, to identify what's happening so that when something like you know the fall of the burning wall happened we know the significance of that it's god that did it it's not a human, human incident. All goodness comes from God. And therefore, because we know that, we're able to point that out and to, and, and to if you like, tell everybody else where goodness comes from, where the kingdom of God comes from. This is God's kingdom, not just a human activity. So those are my thoughts. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts from our panel? Very helpful, Mickey. <laughs> Well, I agree too. Who wouldn't after that? <laughs> Surely that's right. I mean, the kingdom requires the king, doesn't it? So it'll never be totally manifest until the king is at the center of the kingdom. But that doesn't mean that others can't do kingdom work, it seems to me. Uh, in the hospital, would um, you be in every act of kindness in, on the streets, every act of grace that pushes back darkness and reverses violence and hatred and distrust and loneliness is the work of the kingdom. And um, it'll do till the kingdom comes along and everything is, it seems to me, in varying stages. But the consummation won't happen until the king is properly on his throne and we're all worshipping him and we can't do it properly until that happens. But we can have a go. And I think the other thing, I think it's related to this whole thing, way in which we see people who are not Christians. I think... Um, one of the great strengths of, um, I think, the Orthodox Church in particular is that their emphasis is on creation, whereas I think the, some of the Protestant churches have, have put a great emphasis on the fall. And it's not wrong to put an emphasis on the fall, but I think we also need an emphasis on creation and that every human being is created in the image of God. And therefore, there's something good and noble about every human being, whether they're a Christian or not. And we know that in reality. We all know people who are not Christians who are amazing people who do wonderful things. And simply to write that off and say, well, it doesn't count because they're not Christians, uh, I think is, is, is a, a wrong theology. They're, they're it comes from God because God made them. God created them in his image. And therefore, they, they, they are capable of doing amazing th and wonderful things. Of course, everything we do is tainted by sin. Um, because we're fallen. But I think we need to balance those two doctrines and recognize that people who are not Christians, um, you know, I th that's why I, I personally feel we should be working with um, uh, organizations like 
um, make poverty history and you know Richard Curtis and people who are not Christians who are seeking to to relieve poverty and he's doing that because he's creating the image of God he loves people he cares about the poor uh, and um, that is a way in which we see God's kingdom coming so I think it is it is a very important question because um, I think it will determine how we how we look at other other people who are not Christians and I, I think speaking for myself I, I think I was over influenced by that doctrine of of the fall and that didn't recognize enough that, that the people who are not Christians are, are created in the image of God and therefore are capable of doing amazing, amazing things. I think also just uh, artistically speaking, I think uh, God can speak very powerfully through uh, lots of art, music, literature, which isn't necessarily written about God, for God. And uh, I think, you know, it says the Lord reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. And um, I've always been found it frustrating we meet some perhaps Christians who say we mustn't listen to non-Christian music because I think there's moments I know in my life where I hear a song which can really deeply stir me and actually cause me to worship God to think of who he is and to grow my understanding of him brilliant thank you um we've had a question about alpha and um we have one or two alpha experts on the panel today uh, which is excellent um the question is this the alpha course seems to focus on jesus the son and the holy spirit but doesn't explicitly seem to teach about god the father this seems to give an unbalanced view of the trinity please can you comment so shall we ask the expert to comment, Nikki? Well, I, I think if you look at the course as a whole, it, it doesn't stand up. I mean, if you analyze um, what the material in Questions of Life, which is the kind of syllabus of Alpha, there is a huge amount about God the Father. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge amount about Jesus, there's a huge amount about the Holy Spirit, but equally I think there's a lot about... The whole of the course is about how to come into a relationship with God the Father. Um, so... Um, you know, how, uh, how we, we see God reveal well the first chapter is about the fact that the whole point of life is a relationship with God that's what Jesus came to make possible a relationship with God the Father then um, how, what does God look like he's revealed himself in Jesus why did Jesus die to bring us into a relationship with God the Father how do we come into a relationship with God the Father by faith by faith in Jesus, that brings us into a relationship with God the Father. How do we grow in that relationship? We grow through reading the Bible. That's the main way in which God speaks to us, is through the Bible. So if you want to hear God the Father speak to you, the main way you do that is through the Bible. Uh, prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But it, it's, it's a relationship with God the Father. Um, the Holy Spirit, the talk on the Holy Spirit. Uh, who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Spirit do? The main work of the Spirit is to bring us into a relationship with God the Father. The Spirit uh, intercedes uh, for us. The Spirit uh, makes us witnesses in our hearts that we are children of God. The Spirit cries, Abba, Father. So the, much of that talk is about Although it's called, what does the Holy Spirit do? It's really about the fact that God brings us into a relationship with him. In the and the whole talk is based around the, the family. But in particular, it's about being in a relationship with God the Father. Um, what, how can I be filled with the Spirit? It, what does the Spirit do? He pours God's love into our hearts. The love of God the Father is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And you could go on, each, each talk has this emphasis, hopefully this Trinitarian emphasis, on the fact that um, you know, we're, we're called into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus, 
by the Spirit. That seems to me the New Testament balance. Is it totally, perfectly balanced? Of course not. Nothing is perfect. Uh, and I, and, you know, but but is it, are we seeking to have a Trinitarian ba balance? Do we feel we've, we have got a balance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. But, of course, we need to work on it and see if there are other ways in which we can improve it. Graham, you've been doing a little bit of work on the sort of theolog theological underpinnings of Alpha, and, and so I wonder whether you've got any uh, comments to make on this as well. I agree with Nicky. <laughs> um, uh, I think my, my only comment is that, as with understanding Trinitarian theology, it's it's quite easy to get it wrong. It's 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 quite easy to think of the sort of three persons of the Trinity as like three individual people. Um, like you know, you think of you know, there's Tim and Nicky and me sitting here, and and we're like the persons of the Trinity, and and. And the problem is, if you think that way, you think of them as three different people who happen to kind of be quite close, a bit like three friends. Um, and th then you're always looking out for a bit of, you know, have we got enough of, of each, each one? And you're looking for, you know, are there enough mentions of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit so we balance it all out? Um, but I think that the, the Trinity is, it, there are kind of problems in thinking of the Trinity in that, in that way, in that very divided sort of personhood way. It's, it's more that God is... is, is um, uh, he is three in one. He is, you know, there are these three, um, uh, you know, these three, these three persons within the Trinity. But it's not that they are three individuals. It is one God in three persons. And therefore, always when we're talking about the Trinity, there's always, we're always talking about the relationships between them. And, and in a sense, you, can, you can't really mention one without also somehow mentioning the others uh, at the same time. And um, because that's what they consider, you can't really talk about the Holy Spirit in isolation from the Father and the Son. You can't really talk about the Son in isolation from the Spirit and the Father. And I think what Nikki's quite helpfully explained to us, I think, is the way in which the three persons... I used to use a technical theological word, co-inhere with one another. You, you know, there's, a, there's always this interplay between the three. So whenever, when you're talking about the Spirit, you're also talking about the Spirit bringing us into relationship with the Father through the Son. Uh, when you're talking about the Son, you're always talking about the Father who sends the Son and the Spirit of the Son and so on. So it's not quite as simple as, being, as kind of balancing it all out between three separate persons. We're talking about one God in three persons. And so that whenever we talk about that God, we're always talking about these three, if you like, dimensions uh, of God's God's own nature, and therefore, rather than th you know dividing the Alpha course up, and there's a bit on Father, Son, and Spirit. Actually, it's all in together, and there's always this weaving together of Father, Son, and Spirit all the way through good theology, and 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 I think it happens in the Alpha course too. Thank you. Um, singing. This one I think is for you, Tim. Uh, question is. Um, why is singing considered, or does it seem to be considered, the most relevant form of worship within a church service? Do you agree with that? Not agree with that? What do you think? Well, I think singing in music, firstly, it's, a, it's an amazing gift from God. You know, the, the Bible talks about singing to the Lord. Also, Psalm 33, verse 3 talks about playing skillfully. I think uh, we need to remember that. Music, singing is, is God's idea. I think it's his gift to us. Um, and also there's a huge power in song. You know, I don't know if you, you know, but um, apparently when cows are listening to music, they produce more milk. And uh, <laughs> w w when chickens are listening to uh, pop music, they lay more eggs. So if you like your scrambled eggs, then praise the Lord for Abba. Yeah. But um, I, th I think there's a, a huge power and emotion in music, which is a wonderful gift to us from God to help us express our love, adoration, the things 
often that are, are too deep for words. You know, sometimes a, a song can express things that it's very difficult to find the words to kind of truly communicate what we're feeling and thinking. And also, you know, there's a song going on all around us, a s song of creation. You know, the, uh, the trees clapping their hands, you hear it in Isaiah, or the, the seas lifting up their voice, or in Joe we hear about the morning stars singing together. And this song goes on all around us, 24-7, creation, worshipping God. And uh, we're called to be a part of that song, the eternal song, worshipping our maker, our king. And so I think music is this an amazing, has this amazing ability of helping us to respond, to connect, to engage with God. And that's why I think it's so important. I think uh, it's not about cultural being relevant. It's just throughout generations. It's been an amazing way of God's people responding back. I think there are lots of other ways of worshipping God. I mean, silence can be an incredible, prof profound way of, of responding. But perhaps if we had every week, you know, half an hour of silence in our church meetings, it become very, very boring. But I think silence can be an amazing thing. Art, you know, some of Charlie's paintings and sculptures, you know, the, the, the prodigal at the front of church at HTB is, is an amazing uh, part of our worship, just to be continually reminded that we're called into this everlasting embrace with the Father, that we can come back, the prodigal returning home. That's an incredible part of our worship. So I think there are lots of other expressions, but music on the whole, I think is such a great way of the church really worshipping God and connecting with Him. Um, yeah, it's, I think that it's very interesting that uh, singing is something Christians have always done, right from the very earliest times and, and it's, I think it's very interesting how it, almost every for like, move of the spirit in, in the church historically has been accompanied by a, a fresh um, outpouring of song and, and music um, I mean if you think of the sort of monastic movement and the, the growth of that as, as a crucial uh, way in which sort of Christianity kept alive during the, the dark ages of European life you know along with that came, a, came this, this new form of, of, of chanting and Gregorian chant as, as, a, as a form of of, of song worship, you, you know, even out of the, you know, the, the Reformation, you know, um, the Calvinist churches developed a particular form of singing the Psalms and, um, uh, and, and a way of, of, of putting those into, in, in, into music. You could say the same of the evangelical revival. You could say, you could say the same about, um, about all kinds of sort of movements of the, of the spirit through, through the history of the church. And I, and I think it's because music, and it's, it relates to what Tim was saying, I mean, music has, a, has a, an ability to connect head and heart, if you like, of, of logic and emotion um, in a way that simple prose spoken can't quite do. Music takes those words, it takes ideas, it takes um, things which are expressed rationally and, and connects it into, into, into emotion. And actually, in order to respond to God, we need both head and heart. We need both logic and emotion. We need both of those things. And music has an ability to connect the two, which is why there's almost a spontaneous outpouring of song whenever the Spirit of God touches people. So, um, so I think that's it's something to do with that, I think. Can I add just one other aspect, which is simply that I think it enables us to do things together. You get a harmony, which is more easily attained than by just us speaking together. And it's the most beautiful, beautiful thing. That's why singing in the Spirit is such a beautiful thing, because we have to listen to one another, and we have to respond to the leading of the Spirit and when it's harmoniously done, it's a foretaste of heaven. And we do know, whatever else we know about heaven, is that there will be a lot of music in heaven, and a lot of singing in heaven. So we've got to get used to it now and start learning if we haven't done it before. Uh, and that's a precious thing. 
Thank you. And we sort of continuing with sort of church life um, themes in the life of a church. Um, we believe in healing. We pray for healing. Uh, question here about um, how we encourage expectation of healing in the face of terminal illness. Um, the often terminal illness, we know, majority of cases does end in death. Uh, and and what's the balance between expectation of healing and preparing people for death in, in sort of pastoral um, situations? So a really important question, I think. Um, where shall I turn first? Shall we start with Sandy? Uh, do you know, I, I think it's such an important um, question because in our enthusiasm a few years ago for healing, I, I've, I've, I've often wondered whether we allowed people space to know that they were dying immediately, I mean, not eventually, uh, and prepare for it. Because so often there's such pressure to, uh, to grasp faith if you believe, you will be healed, and if you don't believe, well, then you're going to die, but that's not my fault, as it were. It's yours. And it's so contrary, it seems to me, to Scripture, because we know that illness is not of God, so we have a presumption that we're on the right side to, to, to seek to deal with illness and rebuke it and pray against it. But I think we have to be as sensitive as we can be to the Spirit, to the moment at which the Spirit has said, this sickness, as unlike Lazarus's, is unto death, and therefore all our energy needs to go. I remember years ago when John Wimber first went to David Watson and said, David, you know, you look to me as though you're dying. And that was the first person, Christian person, who had said that to him and enabled him to, uh, and his family to talk together about it and to prepare for it rather than each of them to go on on this sort of uh, slightly strained and unreal uh, expectation that all was going to be what which it will in the, in the end of the day because death is the ultimate healing but it enables us to mix reality and that's I think a, a gift of discernment Lord are we right to go on praying for healing yes then on we go every means at our disposal is this the moment to which we prepare for death yes in which case and that's a very delicate balance I think pastorally um, but we need to bear both in mind I think in all honesty Thank you. That's very helpful. Shall we, a um, couple of minutes, uh, turn to the um, our audience here. Any questions from the floor? There's one over there. Sean's coming with a microphone. We'll have three or four questions, um, and we'll gather the three or four questions, and then, yeah, so if we could, thank you. It was on the first question about um, kingdom. Uh, I've sort of detected, as I've gone through the church, a change in approach um, where we at once considered um, God to only really work through the church and but I think that's moved more towards looking for him uh, at work and looking for him doing things that we're not directly doing what is the extent of that um, in terms of uh, I'm a community worker um, do to what extent do we partner with non-Christian uh, agencies and organisations, the local authority, the police? Um, whenever I've talked about it in, in sort of conservative circles, the verse about being yoked together with unbelievers has come up. So I just wondered what, what sort of extent we do partner. Thank you. That's a great question. Can we have other one or two more from the floor and then we'll try and deal with these? One more over there. I have a question about maybe very basic. Um, it's just there is a church locally, which is mainstream, but they believe they don't believe in the divinity of Christ, but they call themselves Christians. And when the, when you basically raise 
and the issue is how, how you deal with them. Do you, you know, bring it up and discuss and fight for the truth? And they say, well, we have to be unified and we have to face the issues which are major at the moment, but not discuss this one. But this issue seems to be so fundamental and they call themselves Christians. They just wanted to get your advice on that. Thank you. That's wonderful. One or two more. There's one down the front here and there's one at the back. We'll go to the back over there and then we'll come down the front here and that'll probably be all we've got time for. How can a Christian um, wear a £500 watch when people are dying daily of preventable disease? Thank you. That's a good question. And right down at the front here. To do with the canon, it's um, the books that weren't included in the Bible um, when dealing with, uh, let's say, individuals like um, when you're speaking with Muslims down in Speaker's Corner and such like that, they'll quote the books that weren't included, like the Acropolis or something like that. Or something like that. I forget what it starts with an A. Apocrypha. Apocrypha. That's the one. Yes. Uh, what are your views on that? And um, where does that come into play when witnessing to individuals of other faiths like Muslims? Thank you. That's great. Um, should we start with the first one then, the one on the kingdom and dealing partnerships with non Christian uh, agencies? Nikki, you began to talk about this, so would you mind? Well, there's a bit of debate that goes on. It's one of those things where I think there are different views within this community on, on, on that subject. My own personal views is, are that we should, because, I, because of this doctrine of creation. I think there are, um, uh, because I believe that every human being is created in the image of God, uh, and because I think there are common human um, creation causes. For example, the issue of poverty, that you do not need to be a Christian to be concerned about poverty. And it seems to me that we ought to be working with the people who are concerned about poverty. Many of them are Christian, but some of them are not. And um, governments are concerned about poverty. Um, and um, uh, you know, our, our, this is not a political point. I think Gordon Brown is passionate about global poverty. No doubt David Cameron is as well. And, but it, it doesn't matter to me. It's not, not a political point. But whoever is in the government, whether they're Christian or not, if they're concerned about poverty and they want to work with us, as I think they do, um, then I think we should, we should work with them. And um, yes, uh, you can say do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but equally you can say the government, look at Romans 13, you know, the, the governing authorities are from God. It has to be ba balanced with Revelation 13, which says the governing authorities are demonic, but it, it, um, <laughs> um, uh, and they're, they're both true at the same time. And that's why we have to, ha you know, we have to be very cautious about it because th those two things are true at the same time, and there's that balance in the new test, in the New Testament. But I do think we should work with people of goodwill who are not Christians. Um, you know, Rich Richard Curtis came here last year to speak, and that's why I, I mentioned him particularly because it it did raise an issue, and some people felt he shouldn't have been here because he wasn't a Christian, and the, the charities he's running are, are are not specifically Christian. And I don't I don't agree. I think I think. Um, uh, we should be working together with him and of course it has an impact on them too it changes their attitude to the church because they, they think the church is just kind of the, uh, you know, not concerned about poverty not concerned about the issues they're concerned about and when they see that we are and then we work with them it changes their attitude and I think it, it, 
that's not the reason for doing it, but it, I think it's a byproduct of, of doing it. Um, and I think, you know, community work, what you're involved in, of course uh, we need to work with, with, and we do it with the Caring for Ex-Offenders. We work with the police, the probation service, local government, um, because they, they too want to see people not re-offending. And they have a part to play in that, we have a part to play in it, and I think we should partner with them. Brilliant, thank you. We're going to have to deal with these briefly. Um, so we'll move, sort of linked a little bit um, in terms of uh, dealing with certainly poverty. Um, how The question about how a Christian can wear a £500 watch, and obviously a lot of issues um, underlying that question, uh, dealing with um, our sort of uh, rich uh, status versus uh, the majority of poor in the world, and how we're to respond to that as, as Christians. Um, Archie, Sandy, Archie perhaps? To put you on the spot. Have you got a watch on? No, no. <laughs> My watch looks like a £500 one, <laughs> but it's a cheap imitation. <laughs> which is, I'm um, not sure it's right either. Oh, is that the time? No. Um, I, um, I, 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 I can't comment. Almost. These are a few principles that I use um, because I think um, one can live in a permanent state of irritation of the way that other people other Christians choose to live their lives. And so I have um, two or three principles so that I don't get constantly worked up with other people in the church. Um, the first is um, uh, do not judge lest you be judged. And so I don't know why someone would have a £500 watch. Maybe they were given it, maybe they were bequeathed it, maybe they were... Secondly, um, uh, that uh, I'm responsible for my own, my own life under God. I'm not responsible for, uh, for somebody else's. Um, uh, thirdly, um, uh, so I have two other ones. Well, I'm just remembering them when you asked the question. Um, come back to me, and I'll, I'll chip in in a minute. <laughs> okay. Um, while, you're, while Archie's remembering his other two points, which are really helpful, um, Sandy, perhaps the divinity of dealing with people who don't believe in the divinity of Christ. I mean, it could be cr people who call themselves Christians, but also you're in Tollington, surrounded by other faiths. Um, would you like to comment on how we deal with that best as Christians? Me? Is that possible? Um, <laughs> I, I, to be absolutely honest, I'm not sure I've totally understood the question. But I think our function is to go on witnessing to the divinity of Christ. We will have to witness to people who believe everything and nothing, everywhere, and go on looking for what I think are called people of peace, anybody who can work with us and talk with us and minister with us. But at the end of the day, Christ is divine. That's the beginning and the end of the matter. So whatever they believe, we treat them as human beings, brothers and sisters, who we can work with and seek to witness to the divinity of Christ in everything that we do. And for the rest of it, please God, they'll come to see that either now or later, but I'd rather it was now. Thank you. Um, while Archie's remembering his other two points... Um, Nikki, Can I you comment on Archie's point please, very quickly? Please, please do, it, it Sandy. It seems to me, in all honesty, a question of degree. If their income is five million, they give away four million, and they have a five hundred pound watch. I don't feel honestly able to be very critical of them, but and I don't want to be critical of anybody anyway for the same reason as Archie does, but because they 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 are going to be judged for that. We have to remember that it's the love of money that is a dangerous thing, and the fact the root of all evil, and um, bless them. It's I don't think easier to judge in a vacuum because it's by our fruits that we will be known, and we have to go for that and help them draw alongside them and help one another with these things. I think it's largely a question of degree, because there are a lot of people who will say that I have a car. And if you have a car and own your own house, you're amongst the very small percentage of rich in this world. 
very small percentage of people in this world. And I think uh, we are the rich to whom Jesus is speaking in the New Testament. So it's quite a complicated um, business to start um, where that question would start. And I understand it very well indeed. Um, but um, God willing, we have to go on asking it all what to do with what we have. And that's what I was trying to talk about the other night, I think. One day, it'll all come out in the light. I understand as well, um, the Bible has quite a lot to say about um, prohibitions, you know, things you shouldn't do, but not very much about prescriptions. And I, um, yeah, I think it's work, worth working out what, what sort of law and what sort of our law. And um, that, that gives them the freedom for God to convict people in their journey with him as and when, which might be at a very different time scale to how I would do it or where I am up in, in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Graham, the Dean, we'll, we started with the Dean, we'll return to the Dean. You've got about 30 seconds to deal with the Apocrypha, the Canon, and to say um, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of books that didn't get into the, the Bible, I think um, you have to distinguish between three different kinds. Um, there is what's called the Apocrypha, which, is, uh, which are sometimes called the Deuterocanonical books, which were largely works written between the times of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and um, uh, are in a sort of uh, secondary category. They're, they're, they're usually designated or, or described as books that are useful uh, for Christians to read, uh, but not to be viewed on the same level as the rest of, of Scripture. So you often find them printed in a separate section within the Bible in between Old Testament and New Testament, and so that's the Apocrypha. Then there are um, works around the time of the New Testament, which, are, again, are generally considered to be orthodox, um, but didn't quite make it into the canon of the New Testament. For example, there's a work called the Didache, or, or the, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, books which are, which are uh, viewed as, as perfectly orthodox, but for various reasons, we haven't got time to because I've only got 30 seconds, didn't quite make it into the New Testament. Um, then there are other works, the third category, which, um, which didn't make it into the New Testament, um, not because... Uh, and usually the second category largely didn't make it in because they didn't have a strong enough connection to the apostles. Um, and that was one of the criteria for what got in and what, what didn't get in. Um, but the third category are books which were actually didn't get in because they were viewed to be um, heretical. In other words, not part of orthodox, mainstream, apostolic Christianity. And many of the books that you might find referred to in the, in the Da Vinci Code and so on, all of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the Nag Hammadi texts are in that category. In other words, they describe a form of Christian faith that as the church developed and as it matured its understanding of what its own identity was and what it believed, uh, the church began to feel, no, that doesn't describe where we're at. That's not it. That's a different gospel. And so those books don't get in. Uh, and, and essentially the canon um, of Scripture was decided not by a particular council. You can't decide at a particular moment when the church decided, right, those books are in and those books are out. It wasn't an individual decided. It wasn't a pope suddenly said, this is what it is. It was basically use over centuries. And over the first three or four centuries of the church, uh, the, it kind of settled down into that these were the books that the church recognized uh, were apostolic. They were part of the mainstream teaching of the church. They're in a sense that and the church is not conferring authority on those books. The church is recognizing an authority that it already has, recognizing these are the works through which God has spoken to us and recognizing these as, 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 as special works. So I think that those that threefold categories may be helpful in that. Thank you. And uh, it only remains to say at the end of um, our God Pod at From Home Focus, a uh, big thank you to all our wonderful panel of speakers and questioners. <laughs>
And also a very big thank you to our audience here today, a wonderful audience, great questions. Thank you for your contribution today. And uh, to all of those of you listening to GodPod, we'll be back again again uh, in a month or so's time. And um, okay, thank you. Bye. Oh, I didn't realize it was actually the GodPod. We were going out <laughs> beyond this room. <laughs> we can edit it. We can edit it, Nicky. Good. Just edit me out. <laughs> that was GodPod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.